Good morning, everybody, and welcome to our church online service again. Thanks for connecting in. Today is a special Sunday. It's our anniversary Sunday. Sunnybank District Baptist Church is 63 years old today. And so we, as Pastor Charlie probably already has, but we need to give thanks to God for our church and for its faithfulness and for the people who are in it and for placing us in this church where we get to be ministered to and cared for and to serve one another. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to continue our series on the stories Jesus told. Let's pray together. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for uh, Sunnybank District Baptist Church. You're the one who raised up this church and planted it here. You're the one who's been working in and through this church in our community. We thank you for our Chinese congregations, brothers and sisters, and we pray your blessing, Lord, upon all of our congregations, and especially in this disconnected time. Thank you that we are still committed to your word and to teaching and preaching your gospel so that lost people might come to know Jesus. And to that end, Lord, we commit ourselves today. Open our eyes, help us to understand and to be obedient to what we hear. We ask and pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Um, stories Jesus told. Today we're in Luke 16 and it's about, well, most people say it's about two men, the rich man and the beggar which is what I called it. Um, but it's really about three men. It's about the rich man. It's about Lazarus, the beggar, but it's also about Abraham. And, but it's those three guys, and it's their interplay between two destinies. And that's primarily the thrust of it. So let me just read through verse by verse and make comments as we go through and then bring some tying together, some application at the end. Verse 19 says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. That's our first character, a rich man. He used to dress himself in purple. Purple was very expensive material, a dye, that uh, was difficult to get and often only the wealthy had it or royalty. So the fact this man is dressed in purple, he's living like a king. He's living like royalty. And the text actually says he dressed himself, that he intentionally and deliberately paraded his wealth and emphasizes Jesus in telling the story says he was dressed in fine linen. It's referring to Egyptian linen, the best linen of the time. This is where this is his underwear if you like. It's very light and um, very smooth and silky. Uh, he was a man used to the fine things of life and in fact the passage says and he lived in luxury every day. He had a feast every day, master food banquet. Had five brothers, as we learn later on in the story, and they probably came around very regularly, and he feasted and party and enjoyed his life every day, including the Sabbath day. So there was no Sabbath. This man appears not to have been a religious, certainly not listening to the word of God, um, but rather just completely focused upon himself. He's unnamed. So the first man is the rich man, clothed in purple every day, feasting in luxury and enjoying all that this life has to offer. Didn't go to work, didn't need to go to work, had enough wealth, income to sustain himself and his household. We also read at his gate. This is not the front door. This is the gate to his property that was fenced at his gate, there was laid a beggar named Lazarus. 
The fact that he had a gate means that it was probably some sort of park or garden in, in his front yard. And probably there are also guard dogs, which will be referred to in a moment. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, verse 20 and following, who was covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Notice the passage says that Lazarus, the beggar, was laid at the rich man's gate. He couldn't walk. He was carried there by friends or by family and every day where he sat all day waiting to receive something and it would appear that he received very little. He was longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. In another story of uh, a lady who visited the Lord Jesus, it refers to this, uh, their culture, their custom where when people sat down to eat, they didn't have napkins, but they would use dry bread and they would take the bits of dry bread and they would use that to clean their hands, to wipe it of oils and greases and things like that. Those bits of bread then would fall, to the ta fall to, from the table to the ground and house pets would come and eat it up. Or in fact, after the meal, the, the uh, servants would come with a broom and they would sweep it up, gather it up, and then they would go out and they would give it to their guard dogs first or all the way out to the gate in the front fence where there were often not just one beggar, but we're told of one, but give it to the beggars, the leftovers, the scraps. What would normally be thrown in the bin um, was given away to the dogs or to the poor people, the beggars. And it says at the end of verse 21 that even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, whether that's the guard dogs which would be ironic that the dogs of the rich man cared more for Lazarus than the rich man himself. Or the dogs could be referring to the actual wild street dogs who likewise were scavengers and came around looking for any scraps and they would have had their favourite locations to do their searching and looking for food. Well, even these dogs would lick his sores. He was so helpless and so weak he was covered in sores, it says, ulcers, quite literally. And these dogs, by licking it, may have brought some sort of relief. Um, or in fact, it may be an indication of more misery. That here is a man who is absolutely destitute of anything good in this life. And he was laid at the rich man's gate. It's interesting, Lazarus is the only person in all of the stories that Jesus ever told who is named. The prodigal son is not named, the father's not named, the good Samaritan's not named. Nobody is ever named in the stories or parables of the Lord Jesus. But for some reason, and interestingly, this one is. Lazarus literally means, it's short for Eliezer, it's God helps, God is my helper. Um, and... There's probably some truth and meaning in that, but there's also probably a link as the story goes on with another Lazarus who was dead in the tomb for four days and who came back to life again. And there's a link somewhere, somehow in these stories. <clears throat> Verse 22 says, the time came for the beggar to die and angels came and carried him to Abraham's site. The rich man also died and was buried. Death came to both men as indeed it comes to all of us. It ended Lazarus's suffering. There is no mention of a funeral. We are told that the angels came and carried him 
to paradise, to Abraham's side. But I think he would have had a funeral because he had friends or family who carried him to the gate. And when they discovered that he had passed away, they would have disposed of his very frail body in a respectful way. But the rich man, it is emphasized, he also died and he was buried. He had a funeral. As he had lived, so he was farewelled. All of the five brothers would have come. They would have hired musicians and flute players and professional mourners. And I could imagine he was buried in great luxury. We don't know how rich he was. We don't know how much he had. <clears throat> but we know how much he left. He left it all. We don't take it with us. That's one of the, certainly one of the truths of the New Testament that we need to hear and evaluate our lives by. So the time came, both men died, and the angels carried Lazarus, the implication being that Lazarus is a man who believed in God um, and carried him to paradise. As the Jews believe that uh, the angels come and they escort the departed soul or spirit to their eternal destiny. The Jews believed that there was a, a, the grave they called Sheol was divided into two compartments. One was called paradise and the other one was called simply Sheol. One was a place of blessing and one was a place of punishment. And that is manifested in this story. And Jesus uses the Greek word instead of the Hebrew word. In verse 23, Lord Jesus telling the story says, in Hades. That's the Greek word for, um, for the grave. In Hades, where he was in torment, the rich man looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side in Hades. This compartment of the grave of those who have departed, which is in Hades, it's a place of torment. But in paradise, which is also part of Hades, just a different section of it which is a place of, um, of blessing, of peace and of comfort, paradise. And so the rich man has gone to Hades, the place of torment, because he's not a God-fearer. He didn't listen to God's word. He wasn't obedient to God's scriptures. He did not factor God into his life at all. He focused simply upon himself and this life. And now death has come and he finds himself in a place of torment. And for the first time in maybe a long time, he looked up. And he looked up and he saw Abraham far away. Now in the story that Jesus is telling, it's Abraham is the chief character. He's the father of Israel. He's the father of the faithful, the father of believers. And he is the focus, not Jesus and not God. This is, of course, all before the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, which changes everything um, that I'll come back to and talk about in a moment. So the rich man looks up, sees Abraham and Lazarus. It's interesting, as we will discover in a moment, he knows Abraham and he knows Lazarus. The Bible seems to hint that when we leave this life and enter into the new world, another world, the spirit world, until the resurrection, that our knowledge in fact increases, it doesn't decrease, that we remember um, and that we have all of our senses, though we don't have a body. Nonetheless, in this passage, it talks about fingers and tongues and eyes and remembering and, and so on. Well, in verse 24, he says to Abraham, not to Lazarus, 
He's not engaging with Lazarus at all. Father Abraham calls him Father Abraham because he's obviously saying, I'm a Jew and I'm a physical descendant of yours, trying to claim perhaps some privilege because of that, but not a spiritual descendant, not a Jew in his heart. Father Abraham, have pity on me. Mercy. That's what he needed, but it was too late. Have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. In this part of Hades, this section for the unbelievers, it's a place of torment, a place of agony, a place of fire. Um, the scriptures also tell us that this Hades is not hell, but it's temporary. Revelation chapter 20 says that Hades will give up all of the dead that are in it and they'll appear before God for judgment. Well, in this story, this rich man is in Hades, awaiting that God's evaluation of him on judgment day and looking for some relief. His attitude hasn't changed. Um, he's become more aware, but he is unchanged. He's still giving orders. He's still treating Lazarus as if he's a servant and he's still focused upon himself. Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus. On earth, he never helped Lazarus. And in Hades, he's recognizing that Lazarus uh, might be the only one who could help him. Um, as will emerge also, the rich man is aware that he can't leave, that Abraham has to send somebody to him. And so Abraham replies to him in verses 25 and 26, says, son, acknowledging that he is a physical Jew, but not a child of God. Remember that in your lifetime, you receive good things. It would appear, at least in this story, the dead remember, they can remember their life. You receive good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you're in agony there. And besides all of this, between us and you, there is a great chasm has been set in place. It's fixed. So that those who want to go from here to there cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. I think that language is just trying to say there's a great chasm uh, in the afterlife. There are two destinies, one paradise, one Hades. And there is no way to have a second chance. There is no swapping camps. There is no opportunity for that. That decision has to be made before we die in this life. And so Abraham basically says to him, can't help you. There's nothing I can do. Interestingly, the man goes on and says, I beg you, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my family. He remembers his family. I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. He remembers, but he's unchanged. He's still giving barking orders and even to Abraham, send Lazarus. And now he is very concerned for his lost brothers in life, indifferent to the word of God and to God's purposes for him. But in death, fully aware of what was necessary and what was required, even though it was too late for him. He had some sort of care or concern for his five brothers who, like him, were indifferent to God. And he wants to warn them. He knows he can't go. And so he asked Abraham to send Lazarus. Perhaps the five brothers would have recognized Lazarus at the gate and perhaps knew that he had died and 
would recognise him if he visited them, if he appeared to them somehow. To which Abraham gives a very clear response. <clears throat> verse 20, excuse me, verse 29. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Moses and the prophets, of course, means the Old Testament. That's in Jesus' time, all of scripture. They have God's word. They have the scriptures. God has given us that revelation. Let them read and listen and obey what God has said to them in the scriptures. He again, verse 30, disagrees. Um, no, Father Abraham, he said, if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. You see, he is fully aware of what is required, repentance. And he mistakenly thinks that if there was a miracle, if somehow someone from the dead visited them, that would transform them, that would change them. But as Abraham will go on to say, miracles do not create faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, listening to and responding to God's word and trusting him is what faith is and how faith is strengthened. No, Father Abraham, if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Well, Saul um, saw Samuel rise from the dead by the witch of Endor and he didn't repent. The Pharisees saw the other Lazarus in John chapter 12 walk out of the tomb and they didn't repent. That's not true. If we see someone who was dead and come alive again, we come up with all other sorts of reasons and rationalizations. It does not engender faith. And so Abraham says in verse 31, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they don't listen to them, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. If they don't listen to God's word, if they have no inclination to be pleasing to God, then even a miracle like that, a resurrection, will not transform them. And of course, this time it's not someone visiting them. This is a person who rises from the dead, obviously alluding to the future, that the Lord Jesus will rise from the dead and the Pharisees will continue to remain unrepentant. Many will come to faith, but they'll come to faith based upon the teaching and preaching of the gospel and God's word, not upon the experience of seeing Jesus personally. So what does all of this mean for us? There is certainly some things this passage is used for that it shouldn't be used for. The story is not teaching that all rich people will go to Hades and all poor people will go to paradise. It's not teaching that. We know that from other scriptures. It is certainly true though that some rich people will go to paradise and some poor people will go to Hades. It's not a matter of whether you are rich or poor, it's a matter of do you have faith in God? Do you believe and trust and follow the Lord Jesus? It's a story, it's a parable it's not a historical statement about something that does happen or could happen. And so I don't expect that we, the dead, will be able to see and talk to one another across that great chasm as happens in this story. But rather the story is told for another purpose. And certainly Abraham is not the host of the righteous in heaven. The Lord Jesus is now. 
bearing in mind it's Jesus who was telling this story. And when Jesus rose from the dead and he ascended on high, then the, the scriptures teach us that Jesus took with him the souls and spirits of the believing departed who were in paradise. Paradise was in the earth. When Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, he took the believers out of paradise to heaven with him. Because the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about being caught up to the third heaven and he calls that paradise. So paradise has changed location. So now there are still two destinies for us when we depart this life. Our body remains here and we bury it or cremate it. But our soul, our spirit, the non-material part of us, the real us, uh, goes, if you believe, goes to be with the Lord Jesus in paradise, heaven. If you don't believe, if you don't follow, if you're not obedient to God's word in the scriptures, then you don't go to heaven, you'll go to Hades, which is not hell, but it's the waiting room of hell. Um, because all of the dead, as I said, will come out of Hades and appear before God for judgment. So what are the lessons we learn from this? Well, some obvious ones. Some people receive good things in this life and some people receive bad things. We know that from personal experience and this story is building on that truth, that experience. The passage says to us something else we all know, we all die. One day we will all leave this world and we'll go to another world, paradise or Hades. It's interesting, as I said, the rich man recognises Abraham, though obviously he never knew him, but he recognises him after death and he recognises Lazarus. Whether or not he knew him in this life or not, we're not told. Um, so that suggests that the dead will know others, just like Peter and James and John knew Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 that now we know in part, but then we will know even as we are fully known. Our knowledge will increase, which I think is comforting, and it means that we will know one another in heaven. We will see and recognise one another and know one another at a greater depth than we do now. I'm not sure how many of these we can take and apply, but the passage certainly says the rich man remembers. He remembers this life. And perhaps that's an allusion to that truth that the dead do remember their life here and their loved ones and so on. Um, the rich man has a wrong understanding spiritually. He understands that he needs to repent, but he has a false understanding that um, if they see a miracle, if someone from the dead comes and visits them, then that'll transform them. That's all that needs to happen. And that's not the case at all. Um, it would appear the rich man knew that he couldn't leave Hades. He knew that he was there and he was locked in and there was no way out. Um, the angels came and take Lazarus to paradise. The Bible alludes to that in other places, that it is the angels who come and meet us and accompany us into the presence of the Lord Jesus. That's a comforting truth. Um, paradise is a place of comfort, of blessing, of rejoicing. And um, the role reversals that Lazarus has gone from being destitute in an absolutely horrible and helpless situation to being glorified, being 
honoured and being accepted. In fact, he's at a place of honour right next door to Father Abraham. That's the point of it, I think, that he's being honoured. Um, there is a great chasm set between the two destinies and you can't cross from one to the other. Um, and I guess there's a strange way that the NIV translates it, but when Abraham is replying to the rich man and saying, son, remember you had good things and he got bad things and now it's reversed, there's a great chasm. So that those who want to go from here to there, I don't think anybody wants to go from paradise to Hades. Nor, as strange as it sounds, I don't think anybody will want to go from Hades to paradise. They don't want to be in Hades, a place of torment and agony, but nor do they want to be in the presence of God and of righteousness and holiness. People in Hades have rejected God. They don't like God. They're angry at God. As C.S. Lewis says, um, that the doors to, well, ultimately to hell or to Hades, um, the doors to hell are locked and closed. And they're locked from the inside. People don't want to get out. They don't want to go to be with God. I guess if they had a choice, they would prefer annihilation. They don't want to be in Hades. They don't want to be in God's presence. So they'd rather just go into oblivion. You now, this passage certainly says to us that that won't be the case, that it'll be ongoing and without end. So what's the passage about? <clears throat> Why does Jesus tell this story? Well, I think he tells it primarily with what Abraham says at the end. They have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. Listen to the word of God. It guides us and teaches us in how we should live. That we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, might and strength. That we're to love and care for our neighbour as ourself. The rich man didn't do that. He was indifferent to God. And the consequences of those life choices is that he lives without God in the next life as well. Um, we are to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I guess I should say, the Bible nowhere teaches that being wealthy, having riches, is wrong in itself. The scriptures warn us that having wealth having lots of money and resources can be a trap and a temptation. And you can be inclined to turn inward and to think only of yourself. That's the trap. But if God has blessed us with resources and money um, and wealth, then he's given that to us for a purpose, to love him and to love our neighbor as ourselves, to be generous givers and to be a blessing to the world in which he has placed us. So we need to check our hearts and to be aware and not to be greedy, but to be generous, to be thankful to God for all he has given us. Now, this parable is a very solid note, a reminder that we are to listen to God's word, to read it, to hear it, to gather together with God's people like in church and, or in conferences or seminars or podcasts, to expose ourselves on a regular basis every day to God's truth so that we can be wise and obedient in the choices we make in life. We're living in a period of grace. Now is the time and the chance for us to choose God. Now we can 
come to him and receive forgiveness. At death, our destinies are sealed and there is no changing them. There is a great chasm between them. And so like the psalmist says, today, if you hear his voice, if you hear God speaking to you, don't harden your heart. Don't ignore it. Don't resist it, but rather respond to it and be open to it and seek God and seek God sincerely and with all your heart. And he promises that those who seek me with all their heart will find me. And in finding him, you'll find meaning and purpose and blessing and joy in this life and in the life to come, life abundant. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this story. Help us to listen to it. Help us to repeat it and to tell others this story because it contains an incredible truth that you're the God who loves us you're the God who gave us your word so that we could find you and find and experience forgiveness and new life. And that this life is a trial run. This life is preparation for the next life. Lord, help us to believe, help all of us to believe, to trust and to obey. Help us to be aware of those around us, people you place right at our front gate, people you want us to be ministering to and helping and helping particularly spiritually with the truth about Jesus. Lord, thank you for this story and help us not to neglect it, but to be obedient to it for the honour and glory of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.